0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis uh, 41, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of uh, Genesis. And as we continue in our study of this amazing book, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 41, verses uh, 46 through 57. That's what we'll be looking at today. And the title of the message is Faithful in Exaltation faithful in exaltation. Last week, we studied verses 1 through 45 of Genesis 41, and we witnessed one of the most breathtaking elevations to power that has ever occurred in the history of the world. Joseph started the day as a foreign-born slave prisoner in an Egyptian dungeon, and he ended the day as the second most powerful man in all of the land of Egypt, and maybe even the world of his day. After being pulled out of prison and brought before Pharaoh, uh, we saw how Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and told Pharaoh that seven years of abundance were coming upon Egypt, followed by seven years of severe famine, Joseph then counseled Pharaoh to appoint a man to be in charge of seeing Egypt through these next 14 years. He counseled Pharaoh also to appoint overseers who would work under this man. And he told Pharaoh to levy a tax of 20% of the people's produce during the coming seven years of abundance so that the produce that is brought in and stored during the seven years of abundance, would be able to be made available to the people of Egypt when the seven years of famine arrive. Joseph insists in his counsel to the Pharaoh that such steps need to be taken, he says, in order that the land may not perish during the famine. In other words, people are going to die, Pharaoh, if you don't do What I am counseling you to do here. Well, Pharaoh, we saw, really likes Joseph's plan. And he's so amazed at Joseph's wisdom that he takes his own signet or signature ring off of his finger and puts it on Joseph's finger. He dresses Joseph in fine linen, puts a gold necklace around Joseph's neck, and then gives Joseph his second chariot to ride in with an entourage of runners going before Joseph and telling everyone to bow the knee to Joseph as he passes by. Pharaoh literally gives Joseph dictatorial power over every person in Egypt except himself, and he says to Joseph, in verse 44, without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's power. He then gives Joseph an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife, which would serve to naturalize Joseph now as a citizen of Egypt. And with all of that done, we are told at the end of verse 45 that Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. And that's where we ended last week. For at least two years of imprisonment, Joseph had not had the freedom to go forth anywhere, And now he is going forth in power and freedom as the vice regent to Pharaoh over all of the land of Egypt with people bowing before him as he goes and doing his bidding. What must that have been like for Joseph to experience this sudden change, this sudden reversal fortune, this exaltation to power in the space of one amazing day. Just put yourself in his situation. What would that have been like for you? How will Joseph handle now this stunning success along with the power that has been granted to him? How will he handle that in the coming days? Will he keep his focus on God or will he allow life at the pinnacle to destroy him? Will he be like one of the co-captains of the U.S. women's soccer team after winning the Women's World Cup? Will he point to his golden necklace and chariot and say, I deserve this, I deserve this, everything? Or will he be humbly grateful, giving glory to God for his goodness? In his commentary on this chapter of Genesis, R. Kent Hughes says, and I quote, There was only one way to look while in the pit, and that was up to God. On the other hand, the pinnacle of Egyptian life inclined the soul toward pride and independence. At the top, looking up to God was not so natural. Hence, now that Joseph is sitting at the top of Egypt, Hughes goes on to say, "'Joseph's soul was in greater peril "'now than at any other time in his short life. "'It's one thing to remain believing "'and God-centered and faithful in the pit. "'It's quite another to be faithful at the pinnacle. "'Life at the top can make people imagine themselves "'so original and so wise.'" a a one-of-a-kind that deserves all he or she has, extended time at the top of society can work an incredible ugliness of soul. Well said. So what will come of Joseph now that he has been placed at the top of Egyptian society? Will his predictions of years of plenty and famine come true? Will Joseph's plan that he presented to Pharaoh work? And will Joseph show himself faithful to execute the plan effectively? What will Joseph's state of mind be about all of his former troubles now that he is exalted to the top of Egypt? Will he remember God or will he forget God now that he is exalted? These are great questions, and we find the answer to these questions in our passage today and the way we'll break down our study of this remainder of Genesis 41 is we'll observe five developments in the account of Joseph's flourishing and faithfulness as vice regent of Egypt. And the first of these developments is that Joseph assumes his role as vice regent over Egypt at the age of 30. He wouldn't even be old enough to be president of the United States, and here he is in this position in Egypt at the age of 30. Observe what the narrator says in verse 46. The text says, now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This time marker here in this verse helps us to assess Joseph's life both before and after his elevation by Pharaoh. We learned back in Genesis 37 that Joseph was 17 years old when he was telling his brothers about his dreams of dominion over them. Given the fact that we're told that Joseph is 30 here, we can then know, if you do the math, that 13 years have gone by since Joseph had his dreams and was sold by his brothers and taken down to Egypt to become a slave of Potiphar. We're told in verse 1 of this very chapter, Genesis 41, that the events of Genesis 41 take place two full years after Joseph had interpreted the cupbearer and the baker's dreams. So putting these time markers together, we can know that Joseph spent a total of 13 years in Potiphar's house and spent at least two of those 13 years as Potiphar's prisoner after he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Knowing that Joseph is 30 years old at this point also gives us a sense of perspective about the rest of his life going forward. We're told in Genesis chapter 50 verse 22 that Joseph lived to 110 years which means that he served in the Egyptian government for possibly as many as 80 years. So while the 13 years that he spent as a slave and a prisoner must have seemed like forever at the time, in light of the 80 years of life that Joseph now has left, those 13 years, I am sure, would seem more and more like a passing dream in Joseph's rear view mirror. In verse 46, we see that Joseph gets to work right away after Pharaoh appoints him as vice regent. Verse 46 ends with this statement. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. No doubt, Joseph is surveying all that he sees. He's meeting with city leaders and farmers and gathering data on the size of the farmlands and figuring out how much those farmlands would be able to produce each year. Once he figures that out, he can get an idea of what 20% of that production would look like, and then multiply that 20% by seven years of abundance to get an idea of what size the storage facilities will need to be. Joseph will need architects to draw up these plans and then builders to build these facilities at sites that are carefully chosen. Then government workers will need to be available to receive and to keep records for the produce that comes in and staffing will be Needed to protect and care for the produce once it is received. Joseph is also, no doubt, going forth through all of the land of Egypt announcing to everyone that Pharaoh had a dream foretelling seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine and then announcing the 20% tax and what the purpose of that tax would be. What is clear is that Joseph is not taking it easy and basking in the luxuries of being the second most powerful man in all of the land of Egypt, now that he has power. As the Jewish Hamash says, his going forth through all of the land of Egypt was a working tour in which he became acquainted with the populace, learned about the country and warned the people about the impending famine and commissioned the construction of Of royal granaries in every city. As for Joseph's prediction regarding the seven years of abundance, we see what happens with that in the next verse, and this brings us to the second development in this account. Number two, Joseph gathers and stores food from the Egyptians during the seven years of plenty. In verse seven, the text says, During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth, what? Abundantly. This is exactly what Joseph said would happen. These are no average years of production, but abundant production. Observe what Joseph does in verse 48. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Evidently, Joseph doesn't drop the ball on what it was that Pharaoh had assigned him to do. All the food that the 20% tax required be collected, Joseph saw to it that it was collected. And he had food stored in every city from each city's own surrounding fields, which is an ingenious move on Joseph's part and the way that he structured this. Putting a storage facility in each city would give the people of each city of Egypt a sense of ownership in the enterprise and would give them the assurance that the food that he was collecting from them was really for their own future use in that city, making it such that no one would be would have grounds to complain of discrimination or favoritism by Joseph. And it turned out that these seven years of plenty proved to be years of staggering abundance, such that the 20% brought in to these government storage facilities ended up actually being more than Joseph even bothered counting anymore. Listen to what the narrator says in verse 49. The text says, Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Literally, there was no counting, it was too great. This is the writer's way of telling us that Joseph's plan is an even greater success than Joseph himself had even imagined. The seven years of plenty were more plentiful and brought in more grain for the storehouses than they even bothered counting anymore. Imagine how satisfied Joseph and the people of Egypt had to have been upon seeing so much produce gathered and saved up for the seven years of famine that are about to come. And life for Joseph gets even better than this. It turns out that it's not just the land that is fertile. During these seven years of plenty, Joseph's wife gives him two sons during this very time period before the famine comes, which brings us to the next development in this account of Joseph's flourishing and faithfulness as vice-regent of Egypt Number three, Joseph has two sons and names them in celebration of God's goodness to him. Observe what the text says in verse 50. Now, before the year of famine came, so before the first year of the seven years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, his wife, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph is going to use the occasions of his son's births to communicate some sentiments that are on his heart, thereby giving us two very beautiful and clear glimpses of Joseph's state of mind about God and about life and about all that God has done for him in his life. Observe what he names his first son and why. Verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The name Manasseh is from the Hebrew word Nasa, which means to forget. So Manasseh means forgetting. Imagine naming your son Forgetting Joseph gives him this name saying, God has made me forget. He's made me Nassau, all my trouble and all my father's house. Joseph is not necessarily saying here that it's only the birth of Manasseh that's making him forget about all of his former troubles. Having Manasseh is simply the icing on an already amazing cake of how God is blessing Joseph's life in recent years, and Joseph here is commenting on how these recent blessings have impacted his perspective on his former years of trouble. Now, on one level, when you look at the English text, we might think that Joseph identifies two things that God has caused him to forget. In verse 51... He says, God has caused me to forget all my trouble and all my father's household. But I would agree with most commentators who suggest that we put these words together, uh, these two items together and translate Joseph as saying, God has made me forget all my trouble in connection with my father's household. This trouble would include Joseph being hated by his brothers, as we learned back in Genesis 37, their inability to speak a kind word to him. They're stripping him of his fancy tunic that his father had made for him. They're throwing him into a pit and selling him into slavery and wanting to kill him. And even Joseph's troubles in Egypt came about as a result of these former cruelties, From his father's household, yet here Joseph is saying, God has made me to forget about all of my troubles in connection with my father's household. Now think carefully about what Joseph is saying here and what he cannot be saying by this statement. Joseph cannot be saying here that these former troubles are erased from his memory. Right? He cannot be saying that because if that were the case, he would not have remembered to mention them here. Right? What he means in this statement is that God has caused him not to think about those troubles as often as he once did. And when he does remember them, he doesn't remember them with all the kind of pain that he once did. He's saying that the sting is gone from those memories. He sees God's purpose in them. Now he sees how those painful circumstances actually were a part of the sequence of events that led to the outcome that Joseph is enjoying now as vice regent of Egypt. Joseph sees that God has worked all things together for good. He sees that had those bad things never happened, had those troubles never occurred, he would not be experiencing the blessing that he's enjoying right now. And Joseph is taking the occasion of the birth of his first son to enshrine this observation and give God the glory for it. This kind of forgetting that Joseph is speaking of here embodies an element of forgiveness. Joseph still remembers his troubles just as God still remembers our past sins, but Joseph doesn't remember those troubles against his brothers. Just as God does not remember our past sins against us. Joseph now remembers his former troubles without the slightest trace of bitterness And he's crediting God with having accomplished that in his heart. He's saying, God has made me forget my troubles associated with my family, my father's household. We should all realize that there is a day coming when every one of us who knows Jesus will speak the same way about our present troubles. Do you believe that? If not in this life, we will certainly speak this way in eternity with Christ. In Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians four seventeen, Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There's no comparing our present troubles to the glory that awaits us in heaven. One day, in heaven for sure, we will all say, God has caused me to forget about all of my troubles on earth. Every pain, every wrong done against me. I now remember them differently in light of the glory that I have with Christ in heaven. Our experience of glory in heaven will literally change how we look back and see our years of suffering and affliction. In fact, in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis speaks of those who say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Some people talk that way. I don't care how great heaven is, there's nothing in the future in future glory, that can make up for the pain of what I'm going through now. And C.S. Lewis says that people who speak this way are guilty of not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And Joseph is experiencing a foretaste. Of that here. His present exaltation and blessing is working backward and turning all of his former troubles into glory. And Joseph now sees his former troubles as a part of the tapestry of the glory that is now his. It's part of the same fabric. By the way, you might be thinking, I've been hurt a lot in my life. And I might be able to forget about all of my former troubles and hurts if God elevated me to power over some country and made me a dictator somewhere and bless me like he does Joseph here. That would help me to forget. I'm actually glad you said that. The truth is, God has blessed you unspeakably. He's forgiven you of all of your sins. He's delivered you from the condemnation and from the hell that you deserve. If you have believed in Jesus, he's elevated you to the status of being a child of God. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. According to Ephesians 2, 6, which you might want to write down, Ephesians 2, 6, God has already raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places at God's own right hand. Joseph would be jealous if he heard about your exaltation, that you and the blessings you enjoy even right now as a Christian. You have infinitely more reasons than Joseph did to say, God has caused me to remember my former hurts differently than I once did. Because God has given to you a greater Manasseh than he ever gave to Joseph. He gave you more than a son. He gave you his son, Jesus. Observe what Joseph names his second son and why. Verse 52, the text says he named the second Ephraim. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is an amazing statement that Joseph makes here at the birth of his second son, Ephraim. First, Joseph is acknowledging that he's now in a fruitful season of his life. Second, he acknowledges that it is God who has made him fruitful. Third, he identifies the location in which God has made him fruitful. He says, God has made me fruitful where? In the land of my affliction. What land is that? It's the land of Egypt. Egypt was not a place where Joseph ever wanted to go. He was sold by his brothers and taken to Egypt against his will and then sold into slavery in the land of Egypt. This was a nightmare place for Joseph for many years. It was a place of slavery for Joseph, a place of being falsely accused. It was a place of unjust condemnation and imprisonment. It was a place of being forgotten in prison. So when Joseph once thought of Egypt, he thought of words like kidnapping, slavery, false accusation, condemnation, dungeon, forgotten, trouble. And now you can add the word affliction to that list. Egypt was the land of affliction for Joseph. Perhaps at prior points, Joseph had prayed to God and asked God to get him out of Egypt, but God never did. Instead, God left him in Egypt and is now making him fruitful in the very land of his affliction. That's what Joseph is commemorating here as he expresses his amazement at the wisdom of God, and he names his son Ephraim, fruitfulness, to memorialize his thoughts about this. You know, guys, it's natural to find ourselves in places of trial and affliction and wish for God to just get us out of that place, right? And sometimes God answers that prayer and removes us from affliction. But at other times, God keeps us right in the middle of that place of affliction because he intends to enable us to bear fruit in that very spot. And maybe you find yourself in affliction right now. Maybe you find yourself in a very difficult marital situation right now. You want God more than anything to deliver you out of that situation, but maybe God intends to make you fruitful in sight of that tough situation. Maybe you want God to deliver you from the physical affliction that you may be enduring right now, and maybe God will deliver you now or one day in the future, but perhaps right now God wants you to bear fruit for him inside of your affliction. After Johnny Erickson broke her neck at the age of 17, she longed for God to heal her of her paralysis so that she could walk again and live a normal life again. She struggled with suicidal thoughts and depression when she realized that she would not be getting healed from her affliction of paralysis. In God's amazing sovereignty... God chose not to deliver Johnny Erickson from her affliction. He chose instead to spend the last 52 years making her stunningly fruitful in her affliction. And God can make you fruitful in the place of your affliction as well. He's that powerful. Joseph is celebrating God's goodness to him, commemorating how he's become fruitful amazingly in the land of his suffering. And he gives God the glory for accomplishing that. He doesn't say, You know what, I'm proud of myself for making myself fruitful in the land of my affliction. No, he humbly credits God with being the one who has made this happen. It seems that these seven years of abundance could not have gone any better for Joseph materially, professionally, and spiritually. Everything is happening as he foretold. He's executing his plan in a way that has surpassed even his own estimation. And God has given to him two sons which lead Joseph to talk about God and to praise God for God's work in his life. Observe what happens next. And this brings us to the fourth development in this account. Joseph opens the storehouses for the Egyptians when the seven years of famine come. He opens the storehouses for the Egyptians when the seven years of famine come. Observe what is said in verse 53 and 54. The text says, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Notice how the narrator makes the point that the years of famine came just as Joseph had said. So his testimony to Pharaoh was faithful when he foretold of this. But the narrator points out that something is now happening that was beyond the scope of Joseph's foretelling to Pharaoh. There's not just famine in Egypt, but famine in all the lands. Speaking of the surrounding countries in this part of the world of Joseph's day. However, at the end of verse 54, we're told that in all the land of Egypt, there was bread, not just in parts of Egypt, Not just in the main cities or the capital city of Egypt, but in all of the land of Egypt in every city of Egypt, there is bread. And this is because Joseph saw to it that the grain was stored in every city by those who grew it locally. This is a great blessing. Observe what happens in verse 55. The text says, so when all the land of Egypt was famished. The people cried out to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. The fact that everyone right now goes to Joseph or goes to Pharaoh shows us that Joseph was clearly not out there trying to make a name for himself and passing himself off as the Messiah of Egypt making everything about Joseph. Everything Joseph did, he did in Pharaoh's name as a faithful servant to the Pharaoh. So it only makes sense now that the people are famished with the famine having arrived, that they're crying out to Pharaoh and telling him that they are out of food. Yet when the Egyptians did come to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says to them, go to Joseph. And whatever he says to you, you shall do. This speaks volumes about Pharaoh's state of mind toward Joseph seven years into Joseph's service. As John MacArthur says, after seven years, Joseph's authority remained intact and Pharaoh still fully trusted him. There's no disappointment in Pharaoh over Joseph. You guys are famished. Famished. Looking for bread, Pharaoh says, go to Joseph, and whatever he says to you, you shall do. Total trust in Joseph. With Pharaoh's permission now granted, Joseph acts in verse 56. Observe what he does in this verse. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth... Then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. You will note that Joseph doesn't just give away the produce that had been stored. Verse 56 tells us that he sold to the Egyptians, and that ought to make perfect sense to us. I hope it does. Keep in mind that there's been a lot of government expense entailed in building the storehouses, managing the collections and protecting and husbanding the grain that was being stored over this seven-year period, it would only make sense that the government be compensated for this now. And Joseph achieves this by charging a fee for the people to obtain grain. As Henry Morris, the commentator, says, oh, I don't have it. I'll just read it to you. He says, To give the grain away would have meant bankrupting and probably destroying the government. It was thus perfectly right and proper for the grain to be sold, not given as a handout. It would also be important for Joseph to charge some kind of nominal fee to keep everyone honest as well. Charging a fee would help ensure that people are only taking. What they need and not being wasteful. We're told at the end of verse 56 that the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Literally, this could be translated. It became stronger or it prevailed over the land of Egypt year after year. When Joseph stood before Pharaoh earlier in this chapter, he had not only predicted seven years of famine, but he had said that the famine would be severe, literally heavy. And not just heavy, but very heavy. He said that in verse 31 of this chapter. And what he foretold is now happening as the famine grows heavier and heavier upon the land of Egypt. And it turns out that the famine was not just severe in the land of Egypt, but elsewhere, too. Thereby putting Egypt in an amazing position to bring help to many people In the world of Joseph's day. And this brings us to the final development in this account of Joseph's flourishing and faithfulness as vice regent of Egypt. Number five, people the world over are coming to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Listen to what the narrator says in verse 57 The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain. From Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. The economy of Egypt depended on the Nile River literally flooding and overflowing for about three months of the year in a normal year due to rains that fell south of the land of Egypt. These rains obviously were not falling south of the land of Egypt and evidently it was not raining anywhere during this time creating famine conditions around uh, this part of the world and maybe all of the world. So the chapter ends with the people of all the earth coming to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth of Joseph's day. We will learn in the next chapter that The famine was severe in the land of Canaan. Also, uh, Jacob in the next chapter is going to send his sons to go get grain in Egypt. And he's going to say so that we may live and not die. Jacob's language there shows that the famine must have been very severe in the land of Canaan as well, such that their lives are at stake if they don't get grain. Historical. Accounts throughout history tell us about famines in the land of Egypt, even severe famines that lasted as long as seven years. At a few points of Egypt's history, in one such famine, people were resorting to cannibalism to survive. That's how desperate things could be in a seven-year famine, as you can imagine. But in this particular seven-year famine, Egypt is thriving. There's plenty of grain in Egypt. People from other countries are descending upon Egypt to obtain grain for a price because under Joseph's wise and faithful leadership, Egypt had plenty to share. In planning ahead and saving during The years of plenty, the Egyptians were able to address their own needs and meet the needs of others when the years of famine came. So we're going to stop here for today, um, and we're going to pick up in chapter 42 next Sunday. uh, But let's sweep together three lessons that we can learn from these verses in addition to the lessons that we've already pointed out. First of all, we learn something in this chapter about wise stewardship, about purposefully living below one's means. Joseph knew that there were years of famine that were coming. So he literally develops a financial plan for the Egyptians to live on 80% of their income during the seven years of plenty And for them to lay aside 20% during those years of plenty so that they would have sufficient resources for the seven years of famine that would follow. In the end, the country that Joseph is ruling over ended up having enough resources to address its own needs during the seven years of famine and also had enough to meet the needs of people around the world during these seven years of famine But Egypt also had enough to contribute to the saving of Jacob's family and contributing to the saving and preserving of the lineage of the Christ, a preservation that we all still benefit from today. You put all of that together and you end up with some good principles that are worth thinking about for our lives as well. In fact, in his commentary on this passage, Henry Morris says, and I quote, The story of Joseph in Egypt, if nothing else, should warn us that the blessings of prosperity come from the Lord and can as easily be removed by the Lord as he wills. It should also teach us the value of saving a portion of what comes to hand, not only by depositing it in the bank account against a future rainy day or maybe a day where it doesn't rain, but even more by devoting it to the service of Christ where it can never be lost. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul is being quite Joseph-like when he speaks to the Corinthians and says, On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Paul did not want the Corinthians to live above their means. He did not even want them living right at their means. He wanted them to get into the habit of living below their means and setting aside some of their income and saving it. And then to live on the remainder so that they stood ready to meet the needs of others when help was needed. That's why Paul gives this instruction, as Pastor Alvin explained a few weeks ago when he touched on this passage. Paul wanted the Corinthians to set aside and save on which day of the week? On the first day of the week. He didn't want them to wait and see how the week went before they set aside money at the end of the week. He wanted them to make setting aside money to help others one of the first financial decisions that they made and then to spend the rest of the week living off of the rest. Here's one way we can state this principle succinctly. Whatever your income level is, do your best with God's help to live below your means. Purposefully lay aside the unused money and save So that when seasons of leanness come for you and for others, you will have the wherewithal to provide for yourself and be a source of lavish help to others. You get that? I mean, if if every year you are living above your means or even right at your means, you will never be able to lay aside for a rainy day, nor will you ever be able to help others when their days of difficulty and need come. And I think we learned something of that principle here in our passage today. Another thing that we see in our passage today is the power of good government. And boy, do we need this reminder. You know, it's easy for us to criticize our government, uh, but we should remember that governments which exist are established by God. For the good of its citizens, according to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and following. While we can have our opinions about how big a government should be and what its functions should be, our passage today does remind us that governments do have particular functions that can do much good for its citizens when carried out by people of goodwill, right? Can we agree on that? I think we can. Regarding Joseph's example as a government official here, one writer says this, Joseph is the model for those who rule. This narrative affirms that power is a good thing. It celebrates the capacity to make tough decisions, to face crisis boldly, and to practice prudence so that the empire can be fed. This is public power for the public good. There's so many examples of governments that overreach and run amok and end up only serving themselves to the detriment of their citizens. In fact, Ronald Reagan once said the scariest nine words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) And I totally understand why that's funny. It's funny to me. Wonderfully, in Genesis 41, the government really was actually helpful because of the wise leadership of a good man named Joseph, who was in a position of government. We should celebrate and cherish any ways that our government serves us well. We should pray for everyone who serves in our government everyone on government payroll, that God will bless them with wisdom to make wise decisions for the good of those that they serve. And we should vote too, right? In Egypt, their elections were just carried out by one man, Pharaoh. He put people in positions of power. There were no elections other than his choice in the matter but we get to vote in this country, and we should vote in order to help see to it that wise people obtain positions of government office. And if you're here today and, and you work for the government in any capacity on the federal or state or city or county level, we salute you this morning. Some of you are making less money working for the government than you would be making If you are working in the private sector, thank you for your service. I encourage you to cherish your role as a government employee and ask God each day to help you to be as faithful in your role as Joseph was in his for the good of those you serve. And finally, as we close This morning, we see in our passage that Joseph himself was faithful in his exaltation, which points us to a greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, who is also faithful in his exaltation. Christ was faithful, we all know, in his humiliation, and he never sinned once. He did all of his father's will when he was on earth. He went about doing nothing but good never sinning. He was obedient unto death, even to death on the cross, because that's what his father wanted him to do. But in the mightiest change of fortunes that has ever occurred in human history, God raised Jesus from death and exalted Jesus to his own right hand, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. And guys, Jesus is right now being, is being as faithful in his exaltation as he ever was in his humiliation. And God points you and me, all of us in this room to Jesus, just as Pharaoh directed people to the exalted Joseph. When the famished Egyptians came to Pharaoh and they were wanting bread, Pharaoh said to them, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. And I love that instruction Hundreds of years later, Jesus' mother is going to point to Jesus at a wedding in Cana and say to some men, whatever he says to you, do it. In John 2.5, when Jesus' glory was being manifest on the mountain of transfiguration, God himself speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why? Why? Why would God say that? Because Jesus was absolutely faithful in his humiliation and absolutely faithful in his exaltation. Jesus promised his disciples that when he was exalted to his father's right hand that he would request of the father and send the Holy Spirit. Jesus did that. He promised that he will be with us to the end of the age, and he is doing that. We're told in Hebrews that he ever lives to make intercession for us, and he's doing that continuously. Jesus is right now at the Father's right hand, always doing all that we need for him to do as he rules from his position at the right hand of God. He provides for us each day from the storehouse of his surpassing riches. He sympathizes with us in our weakness He's always faithful to come to our aid whenever we are tempted. He's never unavailable to us. He is the perfect, exalted Lord who perfectly always executes his good plans for us who are his. And he stands ready always to provide bread for every famished soul that ever comes to him in faith. So if your soul is famished Today and you find yourself in need of bread for your soul, God speaks to you this morning and says, go to Jesus. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Will you give heed to that call today? Perhaps you're going to all of the wrong places in search of satisfaction and fulfillment. Perhaps you're going to alcohol or to, to drugs. But God says to you, go to Jesus and whatever he says to you, you shall do. Perhaps you're running to certain relationships or to certain addictions for fulfillment, but God says to you, go to Jesus and whatever he says, you shall do. Perhaps you think that if you can just make enough money or achieve some goal, then you will be satisfied. To you, God says, go to Jesus and whatever he says you shall do will you give heed to that call today if you do you will find bread in jesus far beyond even your ability to count far more than you will ever need jesus himself says to all of us in john 6:35 this is literally how it reads he says i am the bread of life. He who keeps coming to me shall not hunger and he who keeps believing in me shall never thirst. No matter what your surrounding circumstances are, even if you're surrounded by famine, all around, if you keep coming to Jesus, you will never hunger, you will never thirst for anything else again. And that's why all of us who are believers can feast on Christ daily. And find our fullness in him. Fullness for our souls. And then go forth from him. And speak to famished souls. And say God has exalted Jesus. And he's given him a name above every other name. His storehouses are filled with more provision. Than you can imagine. Far more than you will ever need. Go to Jesus. And whatever he says. You shall do. Let's give heed to that call and let's pray and ask God to help us to deliver that message to famished souls around us. Lord Jesus, you are an amazing and great Lord, absolutely faithful, faithful, As you reign from the right hand of God. Just as faithful as you were when you were on earth. And your faithfulness is a haven for our souls. And people all around the world can come to you and find rest for their souls and nourishment for their famished souls because you are faithful. May we feast upon you, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to point others to you the way that Pharaoh pointed people to Joseph. And may our call to those famished souls to whom we speak Always, ultimately, essentially be go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. And whatever he says, you shall do. If there's any in this room this morning, Lord, who have never come to Jesus. I ask that you would touch their hearts. And draw them to yourself. And that they would come running to Jesus this morning. That they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live one more minute apart from Jesus. And that they would run to him and whatever he says to do, that they would do freely and happily and find nourishment and satisfaction abundantly for their souls in him. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, and we ask that you would receive what we give today, Lord. Use every penny that is given in service to the Lord Jesus Christ, the spread of his great fame around the world. We thank you for the missionaries that we as a church are privileged to support Lord, bless them and their labor in various places in this country and around the world. And help us each to operate as missionaries here locally. That we would carry your name everywhere we go. Pointing people to Jesus. We give of our offerings, Lord, in gratitude for all that you have given to us. And at the same time, we give ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus, and all God's people said.